Several years ago, when we didn't have a pastor, um, I had the idea that we would start up a series called Journeys. It was basically about people who were in the congregation who you wouldn't normally get to hear very much from. And I found personally, and I know some of you have, that it's pure gold. A lot of them share about themselves and about things they've been doing that no one else really knows about. And so, Rob has asked us to continue this series and um, I'm doing one and then other people are chairing the other one. So here beginneth the journey. Let's pray before we start. Lord God, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Paul and Celeste Vaughan. I first got to know them properly when they came to a home group that Penelope and I ran, and there were all sorts of um, dignitaries and interesting people um, were part of that home group. What year would that have been, Celeste? Can you remember? That was 1997. 1997, and yes, we have a few pictures. Jenny Finley's up there, and my wife, uh, Penelope, and Teresa Vaughan are away with Jenny having their annual holiday, which they do when I'm involved in teaching at Victoria University. So you'll, I can't see these pictures, but you'll see them behind me. Paul and Celeste are quite amazing people, and I wrote down a few things, and I'll just read them. Paul, sharp as a tack, organizer, planner, initiator, risk taker, biblical scholar, motivator. Those are some of the things that I thought of when I um, think about Paul. And Celeste, his other half. The, the person who compliments him so well. The epitome of grace. Patient. A wonderful musician and a teacher of music. A mother. A teacher. And a valuable friend. And so, uh, to begin with, I want to ask them a few questions about themselves and how they came to be here. Paul and Celeste, you'll, you'll work out who, who answers, but tell us a little bit about your backgrounds, where you grew up. What sorts of families you came from? Um, I was born in a place called Belleville in Cape Town and um, lived in Crawfontaine for a while and moved into the southern suburbs. Um, yeah, it was quite, you know, action and lots going on. And I went to the local primary school and I was an athlete at the school and all of that. And then um, we did music at High Little Room with one piano. That was the music department. Um, but we had a really good teacher, and she, all the people that did music, I and mean, there were only six of us at the high school, um, all of us went to study at, at the University of Cape Town and did music degrees. Um, so we always think of that lovely teacher. And my first um, job was at a very low socioeconomic, deprived school, very small, and I was teaching music. And I sang a song to the children in hopes of teaching them, and. Um, and they cried 
And I've never seen children cry when I sang before, but I don't know if it's because the music really then moved through them. And that's how I've seen the power of music in all my teaching. Because from there, I came. we moved to New Zealand after we got married. We were only married for a year before we got here. And um, I was looking for a teaching job. Keith said, oh, go around, look at the schools. There'll be a job somewhere. <laughs> so we went to Nine College, and um, they unfortunately didn't have a job. But when I got to St. Bernard's College, Oh, no, no, she wasn't there that time, no. <laughs> oh, he's just having a go. <laughs> um, I got to St. Bernard's College, and the music teacher had resigned that morning. And the principal then, who was sitting outside the car, I was just going to drop off my CV, and, the, and I never came out, because the principal had taken me all over the school, and given me all the things. And so St. Bernard's became really my home, because I only left there in 2008. It was a school very close to my heart, and even now, I've got boys from the school who still keep in contact. And um, yeah, and that was that. We had two children while we were living here. We weren't going to stay here long. We were coming for two years. Two years turned into a very long time. So I'll pass on to Paul now so you can hear a bit about how he grew up. All right, so I lived in a similar place to her, um, that sort of a colored area. If you remember, South Africa had these uh, different uh, segmented groups, and we were forced to stay in our area. How we just grew up. Um, the first thing I can remember that was iconic is in 1976 when Andy Leslie brought his All Blacks to South Africa. I remember asking my dad when they were playing the local team, Western Province, which team is ours? And he said, the black team. We lost to Western Province that day. I never ever forgave Western Province. I never ever supported them throughout my childhood. I always supported the Northern team because of that. So I remember that very clearly, and I uh, also had the privilege of meeting Bill Osborne with Keith once um, a few years ago. So that was uh, sort of the, the, the genesis of uh, New Zealand being my home. Um, when I was a teenager, I redid my room and I, I plastered a few sayings on my door that was really sort of resonated with me. And the one, I think it was George Bernard Shaw who, who wrote this, he said, the reasonable man always adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable man always adapts the world to himself. And uh, you know, he goes on to talk about what, what that looks like, progress. And I always liked that, because my mother would always say, why do you want, why are you so unreasonable? Why don't you just do what everyone else does? And I think that's been uh, sort of a hallmark of how I've grown up. I went to university, discovered that uh, one needed a computer in the 80s, and I realized I could make money out of it, so I started a business. I didn't stop, and it just you know, grew out of that. But then I thought, well, this is too big. Let's, I don't want to do this anymore. I've proven the point. Let's go to New Zealand. Let's phone Keith and find out we can go, and then we go. And after 12, 13 years, we're like, well, let's go see what England's like. We may as well go and see what the motherland looks like. Tomorrow lived in all the colonies, and off we go. And that's sort of been how I've tackled that. Uh, if there's something to be done, just get on and do it. And, and I have to say he's retained a lot of those skills because with his desktop publishing skills that he developed in South Africa, he was the one largely responsible for getting my book, which some of you have read out 
I couldn't have done it without Paul, and Jeff Wright probably will, will say the same. The skills remain, and he gradually built them up. So Les, tell us a little bit about how you've been earning your daily bread. Um, so I teach, uh, that's what I do. I taught at the high school here, I taught at a primary school in South Africa. And when I went, in fact, when I had the children, I did early childhood with Play Centre, and that was really, I love that. So I've actually taught people from zero to, to 18, and I had some el you know, elderly piano students, so I, I've taught quite a few people. Um, that's where I feel most useful, yeah, working with the children, and yeah, I love it, I love it, that's what I do. <laughs> and I have to say, and I'm sure you other musicians and worship leaders will agree, having Celeste back up front here has been a wonderful addition to our um, a range of musical skills. Now tell us a little bit about your faith journeys. When did, when did the Christian faith first become prominent in your lives? So I grew up in an Anglican church and um, it was coming in the 80s of the teenager and the church was starting to change. We were starting to move away from hymns, we were getting into all those choruses and the minister's wife, I was 13 at the time, she said, well you might as well play the piano and I couldn't play by ear and, but I sat there and I played one finger at a time, trying to get the chorus going. But she was quite encouraging and pushed us forward to do these things. Um, but we had quite a vibrant youth group. And that youth group was holy. And it was at a youth service that um, I gave my life to the Lord. And I remember it as clear as ever. I was probably only 13 years old, but I remember it. And since then, it was Sunday school, and it was youth group, and it was choir. And I always said to my friends at the time, we should just pitch a tent and just, that was where we stayed. Why did we bother going home? Um, that was life as a teenager growing up. Um, but then when we left in 1995, 1996 we left, we got married in 1995. This was the church we came to, because Keith was at this church, and so we're still here to this day. God has worked in various ways through those years. And Paul, I imagine you, you were probably, knowing your mind, were probably a little bit more skeptical and a little bit more difficult to convince of, the, of your commitment to Christianity. Tell us a little about your journey. No, I don't think I was, um, I was against it at all. In fact, uh, growing up in a Christian home in, a, in a, an environment with lots of youth um, activities, it was just part of the course. Um, but the church I grew up in were quite strict about things. Things were quite black and white for them. And because of that, I think my, my, my journey has been about unpacking some of that stuff and repackaging it the way I think it should be. And, and that, that was quite dramatic. I remember the first time it, it, it hit me, and Keith thinks, there's going to be no secrets coming out because he knows all of it, but here's one for you. We were at my uncle David's. Uh, we, we loved being at my uncle David. Uh, he was a great uncle. Just always, He gave me toys at Christmas as opposed to clothes like everyone else. And um, we, had, we were having a barbecue, or at that time I only knew it as a bride. And he must have handed Keith his beer, right? He smoked and he drank, and of course that was a no-no where we came from. 
And I looked out of the window and I saw Keith with the beer in his hand and it freaked me out. Oh my goodness, Keith is backsliding, he's drinking beer. And uh, Nicholas, my uh, my cousin, had to say to me, ah, don't worry, my, uh, my papa is, is always giving it to, to people to hold while he's fiddling with the fire. And you know, those types of moments, you're like, what, what, what what's going on? And then of course, as things dawn on you, realize, wait, oh, wait a minute. So just because they're not wearing a tie doesn't mean they're not Christian. Just because the lady didn't cover her head, it's, you know. So there was a lot of that unpacking. And I think that's been the journey. And I think um, um, a characteristic of that journey has been about the recognition that the world is far greater than we, we think. The black and white stuff is just, uh, yeah. I think we, there, there are a few black and white things like, you know, what have you done with Jesus? You're going to have to give an account of that. Beyond that, how we live our lives, we just have to be so cognizant that people just look at these things differently. And I'm very proud of the fact that I'm surrounded by friends that have very divergent views of what the world looks like, come from different frameworks, because I'm prepared to accommodate that. And uh, I see it in Jesus' example. He's always mucking around with people who probably, you know, we think, oh, why is he with that? Why is he with that person? And I, I find myself attracted to that, that type of message. Yeah, you, you both had such interesting and varied backgrounds, you know, growing up in apartheid South Africa, coming to New Zealand as an immigrant, going to England to take advantage of new economic and cultural opportunities. Um, what what central passion and conviction, um, from what you've told us, do you think is a good lesson for us as individual Christians and also for us as a church? What, what's your message this morning that you could bring to us on why we should continue or carry on? Um, if you asked, if you told me that when I was leaving here to go to the UK that I was going to be staying with a friend, looking after him and his wife and, and his little boy because his wife had died and I was going to live there for three years and maybe sleep on the dining room floor. I would have said, you know, why would I bother doing that? But that's how God works. And so for me, my passion is that we, we make our plans, we talk, we talk things through, but it's unbelievable how God uses you. It's only afterwards you find out that when he's, just before his wife died, this friend of ours that we stayed with, she prayed for someone to come and look after a family. And I never knew that I was going to the UK because I was the answer to somebody's prayer. But that for me is my passion because I, I find out in various ways how God will use you just where you are in, and just be open to that and be yourself and you'll be amazed that you can bless and how you can bless other people. He gets such a raw deal. You know, I think his wife, his brother, mother, and his father died before anyone significant died, you know, close to me. I think, how does that work? But then I end up in 2009 having a conversation with my seven and eight year old. And I have to say to them um, on a Sunday night, goodbye. Um, that is in you. And it will always be in you. But I'm going to go away now for an operation, and I may not come back. 
when you have to say that to an eight and nine year old, yeah, big stuff. And then you realize, okay, if we all get our fair share of good and bad stuff. The irony is that despite the fact that I have this condition uh, called ischemic heart disease, which is effectively the narrowing of my arteries, and I'm going to have to have the operation again around 60 years old, which is why these scars exist, by the way. Um, despite the fact that I've had to go through that, coming so close to one's mortality and touching it and knowing that like that it can turn, um, I've become fearless, fearless of death. What's death? Just another part of the journey. And so almost to the point where um, you know, I can, I can talk to people about, hey listen, you know, things are bad, but they can be a whole lot worse. Let's just think about, not just let's look at the positive side of things, but let's just look at what this gift is that you've been given. And yes, there's this two-sided point, but there's some other stuff happening here. And sometimes you don't see it immediately, just like Celeste said. We had to wait for four years before someone came to us from South Africa, we'd come to England, and they said, you were the answer to Ashley's prayer. And we're like, what were you talking about? So I suppose my message is that despite the crap that you have to deal with on a daily basis, it is rubbish. You can look at it and you can say, this is not ideal, this is not what I wanted for myself. But there's some other workings going on. Trust me. I think you know this anyway. So let that be a word of encouragement. What about for the church as a community? Is there a word you could give us on something that since you've been back that you've observed that you feel we could do better or, or go deeper or... somehow with a little homily, I guess. And as I thought of Paul in particular, not so much Celeste, I was drawn to the parable of the talents, which um, Rob read so beautifully earlier on. And you know that you've, you've seen the story. You know, the, the master calls together the servants and, and one dude gets five bags of gold, and another one gets three bags of gold, and the other one gets one. And you know, the, the, the two with the five and the three make good use of them and then the, the, the one who gets one goes and buries it somewhere and when the master comes back uh, the Lord says well done you two you've done well you've made good out of your five bags and your three bags and to the poor old guy who who went and buried it in the back garden he's pretty brutal and I, I've always wondered about this some um, this parable it's kind of it's bugged me a little I, I guess people might say in terms of my politics and I'm a bit left of centre, you know, I'm a bit of a chartist or, or even a socialist, although people don't really understand what socialism is. 
you know, I believe that somehow there should be equality, and it was almost as though Jesus wasn't really treating these people equally, and he was a bit hard on the guy who, who buried the money in the back garden and didn't use it. But of course, I probably have missed the central message of the parable, that, that, that what Jesus is really talking about is, is how we use what we've been given. And as I look at Paul in particular and his, his compliment, Celeste, I recognize again that God has given him this, this energy, this ability to, to take money and property and gifts and all kinds of stuff and, and put it together. And, and, and I put him along, at the other end of the spectrum, I look at my dear wife, who I can talk about because she's away with Teresa and Jenny Finley, who featured in our home group there on holiday. And, my wife's known around as the, as the refugee lady who rides the yellow bike. And you know, she'll go out, she'll go out in the morning and I'll say, where, where are you off to today, dear? Oh, I'm going to see such and such a family. And she'll come back 12 hours later and she's visited five different families and she's taught driving and she's appeared at, at work and income on behalf of someone and rung lawyers. And, and then a few years ago, she came home and I said, how was your day? What did you do? And she said, oh, I, I bought a house. Um, I said, oh, that's interesting. She said, oh, no, actually, we bought a house. So here was I, a card-carrying member of the Green Party, you know, against property investment. And I was dragged kicking and screaming into the world of um, property investment. And she bought this house because there was a refugee family who had nowhere to live. And, and she's another example of, of exactly what the parable is talking about. What, what we do with what God has given us. She roams around the hut, you know, most of the day and she'll have 15 cups of tea and talk to all kinds of different people. And it's re really, reading this parable again has really uh, caused me to think about, you know, what are we doing with what God has given us? Whether it's the ability to be with refugees or whether it's the ability like Paul, to, you know, to mobilize stuff, to get people energized, to... To, to, to bring groups of people together to do stuff that will benefit the kingdom. And of course, the context of the parable is all important. Remember, the parable comes after Jesus talking about the second coming. And, and, and the parable starts with the words, so it will be like, or and it will be like this. And, and it's interesting that the, the parable that comes before it is the parable of the wise and foolish virgins some of whom used their lands properly and others who didn't. And, and most, most um, fittingly, it comes after, or the parable that comes after is the parable of the sheep and the goats, which, of course, is one of my favorites as a chartist. Um, you know, God's, God's pretty bitter. If we don't help clothe the, the people who have no clothes or help those who are poor or visit those in prison, we'll be judged pretty harshly. So that's the balance. It's rather like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what can I do to be saved? And Jesus said, well, if you kept all the commandments and done all the other important things, and the, the rich young ruler pulls himself up and says, yeah, I've done all that since birth. And Jesus almost feels sorry for him and says, well, if you've done all that, go and give away all your money and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler goes away, you know, rather sad because it's too hard for him. So these things that Jesus is challenging with us are pretty, pretty hard things. They're pretty hard lessons. And I guess the, the, the lesson for us as, um, as members of this church, as people attending this church, is how are we using the things that God has given us today, this week, 
this coming year and the years to come? Are we using the gifts and abilities to do the things that God has given us? And we're all different. You know, Paul and Celeste are very different. Penelope and I are very different. You're probably different from members of your family. But how are you using what God has given you? It is an equal world. We're all given something. We're all given something to use for God and his kingdom. And my challenge to you out of, out of hearing these wonderful people talk this morning is, are you using what God has given you to the best and fullest extent that you can benefit his kingdom? Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for Paul and Celeste. We thank you for their willingness to hear your voice and act on what you command. We thank you for the parable of the talents and that you've given us all something, whether it's money or, or entrepreneurial ability or, or, a, or a big heart, Lord. We, we pray that you will help us to be awake to all the possibilities that you've given us to work for your kingdom in this world. In Jesus' precious name, amen.